officially live. Congratulations. Yeah, but we're not at the dining room studio. So this is actually my first podcast where I'm in an official studio. So, nice. But I know that I was mentioning earlier how if I eat my academic vegetables more and more and more, there's a chance that I could get to your brain strength. <laughs> No, I think my brain strength is declining. The yeah. longer I get, there's too much stuff in there. It's hard did, to extract it at the speed that I used to be able to. Did you ever watch Dragon Ball Z growing up? Uh-uh. No, it's like an anime and they have this over their eye. You can see their power. We would have like different brain powers, but one of the main reasons I think you would be a stellar guest here is that this whole thing is about talking to people. Right. And you and I, we both have studied communication to different degrees. At the same place, in fact. Yeah, at the same place. You did it a little longer than me. I was a little nervous whenever I was in grad school because everybody was talking about PhD school. Uh. And I was like, what? I hadn't even considered PhD school. Yeah. You know, I, I thought I was going to go be a big consultant in Philadelphia. Um, for some reason, I'd never been to Philly, but I wanted to go to Philadelphia. What got you to go down that path of being the professor and staying in school? Yeah. Well, so that story starts, you know, kind of early on when I was an undergraduate at USC. I took these first year classes, which were basically um, a program within a program where you get to complete your general education through, you know, these faculty. They would call first year seminars now, but they weren't called that there. It was called thematic option. And it's kind of an honors program. And I was in that at the same time that I was a biochem major. So I had a biology class of 1200, a chemistry class of 300. And I was getting my butt kicked. These were hard classes. And I thought I was really well prepared for college. And, but at the same time, I was taking these classes that were requiring me to read and think and discuss and write. And I was like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm not sure about that biochem stuff. <laughs> so I was undecided for about a year and a half at USC as I kind of figured out what I wanted to do. And there was this guy who will come back into the story later named Cochise Davis, and he was a resident assistant. He was a graduate student in communication at the Annenberg School. And at the time, he was an RA that was very involved in student life in a way where he would just sit down where, you know, students were eating and he'd talk to them about what's going on. And he was a little older graduate student because he had done some things before he went back to college. So at the time, he says, well, have you considered, you know, taking this class that I teach? I teach nonverbal communication and, uh, I, you know, it's a really special class. It's hard, but you'll love it. It's rewarding. So the funny thing was, by that point, I had decided to become an English major. Mm. But my English professors were like, this is a bad degree. <laughs> if you want to be a professor, don't do it in literature. Yeah. So I had one professor who I'd really admired. She said, well, probably should basically learn how to speak a foreign language immediately, be able to write in multiple languages, and you should specialize in something in this way. And I'm like, uh, language is not my bag, so I don't think I can do that. A coach at the same time was saying, well, I'll just come over here and take nonverbal. So I showed up to that class and it was really the most transformative class I took in undergrad. I had classes as good at it. Um, I had classes that were as interesting to me. I had classes I did better in, but that class was transformative because I didn't think you could study nonverbal behavior yeah. as a thing. I'm like, what? You can do this. You can talk about, you know, what people call body language, um, and he was a superb teacher. He put it on this, the, the role of the students to perform, to, to bring their knowledge, to, to teach the material to one another in a kind of a graduate-like seminar for upper, upper division undergrads. And some students rose to the occasion, some didn't. But 
He also made us do things like read original research there as an undergrad. He made us think, and he introduced to a theory and ideas then, um, which uh, were about human energy management. So when I left that class, I was in one hand having my Shakespeare professor saying English was a bad degree. Yeah. <laughs> and I had coach saying, you know, communication is a pretty good degree. And he says, why don't you go do the MA somewhere and figure it out? And so I had a major in English. I had a minor in psychology. Um, I would have had a double major in psychology had I not taken a history of rock and roll class my senior year. But I was like, meh, I'll just take that <laughs> class instead. And a class with Leonard Moulton. Wow. At, at, yeah, he, he taught a class that showed movies to, and brought in directors and movie makers. So I was like, I'll, I'll trade a major in psychology for a rock and roll and movie class at USC. And so I went to Wake because I applied to five places that all had MA terminal programs. And Wake had the best, at the time, kind of lineage of being able to get people to go on to graduate school, but also was um, really good at recruiting at the time. So I left Los Angeles, left everyone behind that I knew, and I moved to Winston-Salem. Yeah, it's it's cool being a part of that grad program because you show up and at undergrad, the professor is this individual who's so, like the power distance is yeah. so far. and. It's hard to even fathom that a professor eats lunch and breakfast and dinner, like right. all this stuff is different. And then you show up to grad school and they're like, oh, hey, just call me Jeff or just yeah. call me Jared. And you're like, huh? And you see them all the time. Yeah. They're around all the time. You see their daily habits. You kind of see what it's like to work. I think that's one of the things is I never understood that what, what kind of job it was. And then I began to see behind the scenes for teaching, prepping for classes, you know, doing things like writing and coaching, writing, how to get better at it. But you're right. Graduate school kind of is like an on-the-job training for being a professor if you want to stay. Yeah. Did you have a moment where you said, ooh, this is for me. I want to be a professor. Oh, I knew that when I was an undergrad. So what happened was when I was undecided for a while, at the same time, I would go back to Kansas where I grew up. And my mom was a public school teacher. She was a speech pathologist. And she said, if you essentially you know, do substitute teaching during Christmas time, you can make some good money and you could see what it's like to teach. And mm -hmm. I, I did it. So for years I would go back, I'd do some sub teaching, make some money. But I also found in that time that I think I didn't want to teach at that level. So I kind of knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't think I wanted to teach at that level when I did that. Now, granted, if any teachers listen to this, I'm not trying to uh, say that subs are the same thing as being a real teacher because <laughs> they're not. But it kind of got me an idea of what level I wanted to talk at. So graduate school felt like a way that maybe I would be able to teach, but at a level that was um, a level that I was aspiring to maybe, one I thought excited about. I wanted to kind of be like coach. I wanted to be a teacher like that, even though he was, you know, just a graduate student. And I'd say just a graduate student, but he was a very important one in my life. Yeah. And whenever you went to Wake, I imagine you went on that social science side of the I house. I didn't. That was the weird thing. So my literature background trained me in rhetoric. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, oh, well, this is just literary criticism for speech. It's the same thing. And I really, to this day... I'm not totally sure the difference between literary criticism and rhetorical criticism, except for the object is different. Like, I think they're probably about the same. They seem to influence each other. Yeah. Students at University of Kansas take classes in literature uh, and at, at the PhD level in communication. So, and you could say the same about communication and, and social psychology for the kind of things that I do. There's really not a huge difference there. Um, maybe the object of inquiry is different, but not really. <laughs> But I could go into that, but it's not important. The bigger, yeah. the bigger issue is that I did rhetoric under a master's degree. I did a rhetoric analysis of um, a, a, an event that had taken place in Los Angeles 
when I was an undergrad and I wanted to do a, a rhetorical criticism of it. And I took classes in social science, but my training was kind of equally in both at that time. So I didn't know at the time I was going to go do statistics or social science. Yeah. I, I did the rhetorical analysis of our presidential farewell addresses. So looking at six of them, starting with hmm, Jimmy Carter, I yeah. think, and then going through and looking at the similarities and the differences and the right. trends, the themes, right? Genre. All yeah. That. Yep. Pulling all that apart. And that was really cool because I had this, I was really a big fan of Barack Obama, his ability to communicate. Of course. Yeah. I was like, whoa. And I would watch his, kind of like you watch Steph Curry whenever he's dribbling around, <laughs> like shooting deep threes. I'd watch... Barack Obama give a address on this or that, you That's know, it impressive. was like, yes, seeing him uh, in his element was really inspiring. One of the cool things about your search is looking into relationships, technology, mm -hmm. how those relationships are affected by technology. And that's a big reason why I'm starting this podcast is I think it's important for people to talk to one another. And then I think it's important whenever we have all this technology in and around us, how to use it in a way that benefits the relationships we have. Mm -hmm. Where did you see yourself? Because you're going from doing a rhetorical analysis. Yeah. So that was a while into the future. Yeah. So I took several paths. One of the best things about being an academic, you know, before we started, we were talking about, um, you know, how hard it is to figure out whether you want to take the academic path because there are a lot of hurdles you have to jump before you get there. And one of the hardest things about being an academic, and I say this to my students a lot, is that it's probably the best job that I could ever get for me. It's perfectly suited to the kind of person that I am because I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. I love learning. I love the process of starting new things, but it's a hard job to get and it's a hard job to keep. Uh, but one of the best things about this job by far is the fact that you get to reinvent what you're interested in. If you lose interest in something, you can start something new. So when I first got started, I had a projects that had evolved out of graduate school that focused on masculinity, um, which, you know, influenced later topics that had to do with gender differences and friendship. You know, I early on got an interest in flirting and research on flirting because um, part of it was just kind of coincidence that I got tumbled into a project that gave me a chance to have access to eHarmony data, which I, at the time was pretty remarkable. It was 2004. So I had yeah. a huge door open for me there. Um, technology had, had just started. If you remember, Facebook hadn't really even gotten launched until roughly about 2004, as I believe when it was open at Harvard and a little bit later, 2007 or so, or by, by 2007, um, it was when all universities across the country had access to it. So it was huge growing. But I didn't know that I wanted to study that at that time either. But I did do something on online dating and flirting, friendship. And then it kind of evolved for a while. I was doing one on humor and relationships, which is another project that I had an opportunity to study. So long-term relationships and humor, flirting, and friendship. And so it was kind of fun was when I first started this job, I remember, I mean, started this job at KU. I remember one of the new deans was going coming to our <laughs> faculty meeting. Yeah. And everyone's introducing themselves. And people are giving you know, different lengths of introduction to what the research does. And I study, I, I'm like, I studied flirting, friendships, and <laughs> and, and humor. And yeah. I'm, I'm just like, that's it. Uh, everyone's sort of pauses and goes, well, that's odd. Right. But that really was true. So, but all of it revolved around this idea that I was interested in the ways in which that people make connections with each other. 
I, I still think that flirting and friendship have a lot to do with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, the process of getting someone interested in you is kind of the same in both flirting and friendship development. But what's different is, is the end goal is a little bit different. People's openness to what happens next, you know, is obviously different. But the processes intrigued me, and I wanted to know more. So I didn't really study, start studying social media until probably about... 2010, 11. And at that time I started, did a, I did a project on texting that was very influential, um, partly because I had an amazing co-author Nancy Bam, who's now at Microsoft. Um, she was an incredible person to work with wow. and a great researcher. And then I also did a project with eHarmony, as I mentioned, online dating, which also kind of put me in a position to talk about these issues. But those technology issues, really, at that point, what really kind of took off is I did a bunch of work on, you know, impression formation on Facebook, issues around, you know, how do we figure out what people's personality are, what kind of things are indicative of their personality and their Facebook use. Then I started doing work that had to do with what's called the social displacement hypothesis, which is the idea that if you spend time in social media, you lose time face-to-face. So all of these topics kind of spilled out as I began to try to see the intersection between online and offline worlds. And to this day, I would say that probably the thing that being a communication researcher with a background that was on relationships first rather than technology first, the reason that it led me to where I'm at is that I always started with the assumption that there was somebody else on the other end of a text. Yeah, There was somebody else at the other end of social media. You can't – social media is different now, right? But remember, I'm talking about social media back – 2010, where it was people who you had met and friended in right. your social network. Like your MySpace. That's right. And, and Friendster. And then, you know, this, it, you know, tw- a lot of the things we think of now as social media media are really kind of just a glimmer of what it once was. Mm-hmm. And now, um, you know, in that time when I was researching it, it was really, I select these people to be my social network and then basically I present myself to them and they respond to that. But that means there was always people there and people were communicating with each other through social media. The weird thing is you'd be surprised how little people think about the idea that when we use social media in some ways, we're using it in a way that's a relational act so it's not necessarily taking away from our personal relationships. It is a relationally, you know, it can build, uh, sustain and build relationships if we choose to use it in that way. But it is not inherently one thing. Social media is not for one purpose. It's for, at these days, it's probably for 100 purposes, of 200 purposes. But at the time, even back in, two, you know, 2010, it really could still be used in a lot of purposes for self-advertisement, you know, but also for learning about what's going on with other people. So the kind of focus of my research really has always been the ideas that we seek connection and we're just looking for different means of doing so. Hmm. Why, why is that your focus? Yeah. That's a fair question. I remember I've always been interested in questions and I remember one of the best things about being an undergrad and having good friends and having that kind of freedom of thought and openness to meet people and hang out with them endlessly and bring them in every part of your life, you know, you go on road trips or go out drinking or hang out for hours and talk or go to classes together, go to football games. They were integrated into your world in a way that I think is really without replication ever another time in your own life. There's probably another, there's probably never, never another, another time like undergrad in that way. And I remember at the time, the question I was really possessed with, like back when I was 20, was what's a good use of my time? What matters? What am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to spend my time doing? 
And I hope, you know, that many people who go to school, but, you know, all people at some point in their life get a chance to spend some time thinking about that question because it's a pretty important one. But I was deeply invested in that question at the time. So my work since roughly 2012, 2013 has been focused on the question that I was asking myself when I was 20, but I never got a proper answer to, which is what am I supposed mm, to be doing? Right. You know, and the answer that I came to was I believe and still believe that the most important thing that we can do is witness one another's lives as they pass. We're all going to die. This is all temporary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know, I mean, I, I have gone through different spiritual machinations in my life about what's going to happen next. But the bottom line that I know for certain is where we are right now is a reality that will, it is not permanent. So if we can only focus on the reality that we have now and its impermanence, we can either become overwhelmed by the reality that everyone that you love is going to die and you will too. And it won't matter. Or you can figure out what's the best way to live it while you're awake and you're attentive. And so my research focuses on this idea that the question to me has one important answer, which is that we are called to live a life of witness of one another and communication and technology are both tools through which that we can witness one another's existence and say, you matter. I see you. I care about you. You're worth knowing. Yeah. And to me, that's motivates almost all of my work and it has for probably about 10 years. Yeah. That's awesome. That's cause that's such a tough question, right? Like the, you hear the motivational speakers, find your why, you know, <laughs> what's your why? And I haven't heard that one. That's actually new to me. I, didn't, <laughs> I haven't heard that. I'm, no, I'm not joking. I'm saying, I guess I don't listen to much motivational speaking. Yeah. It's that, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, how, the, yeah. the why seems to be the question that we really have to ponder. Um, well, there's no answer to it. Yeah. The what, the means, the how, the, the method, like, but when you look at why, and whenever I think about doing this podcast, I always say, like, everybody has value, everybody has a story. But sometimes whenever I say that to people, it seems as if it's novel information, like they haven't thought about that. And to me, that's peculiar. Like, oh, you haven't thought about this, but it seems like not everybody is wired in a way in which they see people as just like an endless source of new data. You know, that, that seems like a little robotic, but like you said, witnessing the life and what's happening here and now. And when you open yourself up to others and you allow others to open yourself up to you, it completely uh, changes and revolutionizes everything compared to just doing it all by yourself. Now, social media has given us that opportunity to do that to the millionth degree, right? Because I just got on TikTok. Have you looked much into TikTok? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing all the things that go viral. I'm like, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. The algorithm, like how all of that works. It's quite uh, mystical to me, despite, I would say I connect with people pretty well and mm -hmm. I can like understand people to a decent degree. But sometimes social media is so like far beyond me. Uh, it's hard to understand. What do you mean that it's far beyond you? Yeah. Like whenever I'm interacting or connecting with people on social media, if I directly message them, then we have a decent conversation. Like mm. there was somebody whose content I saw and I was like, Hey, how'd you get started? And it was good. But whenever I'm browsing through things, what seems popular to me, it doesn't seem like it's top quality content. Yeah. 
I see what you're saying. So remember when I said before that social media doesn't have a specific aim or purpose. Yeah. It has a hundred reasons for being. And TikTok versus Facebook versus Twitter versus Instagram versus you can go on. WhatsApp, you know, depending on your part in the world, it's even different. What kind of things you have access to or what you rely on. True. You know, te- you know, Telegram right now. And if you think about the situation in Ukraine. So I think what you, what, what's hard here is when people talk about what social media is, they are not talking about the same thing. They are, right. they, so a lot of times I find myself being like, well, what do you mean when you're talking about social media? And that's why I try to talk about, when I talk about it, I talk about it and saying social media at this time, <laughs> mm-hmm. social media during this period of its evolution, this platform, this part of its function, because it's manifold. It's, it's huge in what it's possible. But what you talk about just there a second ago is social media is also a, a stream of entertainment content that is distributed in a way that allows for users to become the or originator of the, that content. And that has been true. That's a definition of social media has been true since YouTube was founded, since you know, MySpace was founded. Because the concept is, is that as a distributed network, although you get to pick your, your, your connections between people by selecting, I want to follow this person or I'm going to friend that person, depending on your, your platform – the deal is, is that they produce content that you view. So what's interesting is, go back 10 years ago, when you used Facebook, you actually had a timeline that started with the most recent thing and it ended, or it started with the, the yeah, the most recent thing. Right. It went down to the last thing since the last time you went. So you always could see 100% of what everyone else put. And then there were buttons that allowed you to mute and unsubscribe and stop seeing certain content. But there was no advertisement. None, zero advertisement, almost no corporations, almost no uh, influencers. That wasn't even a thing, right? Now, if it was a thing, it was existing on different platforms, such as YouTube, for example. And um, as the, as those things evolved, and like esports and otherwise. So, when we talk about social media, you have to talk about what is it about it that you're not connecting with. What is what are the functions that don't make sense? And what you said is that the functions that don't make sense to you is that the content that other people want to watch is not interesting to you. Yeah. It doesn't appeal to you. Think of it this way. You know, 20 years ago, when I grew up, almost everyone that I knew had a cable subscription. And those cable subscription had, I don't know, 50, 60, 100, 200 channels. I don't even know, because my family was one of the few that didn't have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was a little jealous of what people got to see on TV, because I had five channels. Um, but if you think about it, that's a ton of content, and most of it's not interesting to you. Right. In fact, most people can res- can f- understand what you say if you go, hey, I just browse and click, 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 and nothing, I don't stop on anything. Right, nothing good. Nothing good. And what's interesting, too, is I, I talked to a former graduate student, uh, or a former undergraduate student of mine who went to graduate school who works for Netflix now. I talked to her briefly, and one of the things she said is that it's a very, it's a very difficult problem for people who are aware of how to use TV mm. from a click, click, click perspective to be befuddled about about Netflix because they're like, well, the content still is nearly endless, but choosing it is now harder because it's not just on and an enormous number of people just consume whatever's there, not intentionally pick it and watch it. Right. Which is interesting because Netflix started as a DVD rental service where you picked and watched something. You, right. you can only take three at the time, or I think you could have like as many as seven at a time if you paid the special rate. But the point is the same social media, a lot of social media <clears throat> is more similar to television than it is to human connection. 
Mm. And if you start thinking about the idea that social media is and, and its similarities to television means that an enormous amount of content is not for you. It's for a huge audience of consumers that are not you. Yeah. And that you are being profiled by the algorithm now and in the past by Nielsen or by broadcasters or whatever to try to catch your demographic. You are always the product that's being delivered to the advertisers now. So you have to rearrange your thinking when it comes to this. Yeah. Anything that's free in media, if you don't pay for it, it means you are the product, <laughs> right? And, and you, Chris Miller, are being delivered to advertisers on social media by what you consume. Most of what you consume is not for you or you browse through or you skip through because you're like, this isn't for me. Yeah. Of course it's not for you because they're trying to capture without much exaggeration, you know, billions of people's attention to sell them stuff. <laughs> and so all of that social media is not interesting to me. If you study things like I do and you talk about social media, or if you talk about any of the things related to mobile media, for example, too, which is now people watching on their, on their mobile device, you know, streaming content, watching TikTok videos or whatever, you have to be familiar with these things. But I'm always really clear when I write articles or when I talk to people, I'm like, this is, I am not interested in consumptive practices or, or products. If you want to talk to an expert on consumption, media consumption, you want to trace that back to TV and move to the present. If you want to talk to me, <laughs> you go back to like telegrams and, and letters and you go mm, to the present. Okay. So that helps to arrange my thinking. Yeah. Right? So I know this is a very long answer to your question, but in some level, is it, when people like to say social media is bad for X, Y, and Z reason, I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, I'm like, well, maybe, but it depends on which form of social media you're talking about, which practice of social media you're talking about, which element of social media you're talking about. So does radicalization enabled by social media a bad thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah. Is misinformation on social media a bad thing? Yeah, I'll buy that, right? is the ability for, you know, people to be able to connect to one another and talk to one another and see what their grandkids are doing and pictures of their dog before it goes into surgery. Those are good things. So because all of it is lumped under this terribly unhelpful banner of social media, I'm very suspicious when people start in with a social media is bad philosophy because I'm like, what are we talking about? Right. That person who says social media is bad, it's like, okay, pump the brakes, right? Like there are so many different websites or platforms or right. that are providing like on Facebook, I could message right now. It's about to be my 10 year reunion for high school. Uh. And there's this Facebook group that's been put together and everybody's popping on there and saying, Hey, here's what I'm doing now. But then there will be people who pop on there and just promote something. Right. And it's like, what the heck? But that idea of, Ooh, being able to catch up with people, that's really cool. But then on Facebook as well, they have, but Farmville, yeah. you know, like sure. <laughs> all of these different things. And that's just within that one site. That's right. One of the things you had mentioned was you were in a fraternity whenever you're an undergrad. And fraternities really intrigued me. <laughs> I went through the pledge process mm. at undergrad. And I remember there was these people that I had never met before, really. But it would be like, hey, brother, how's it going? Mm. You know what I mean? And it was a really interesting example to me of like rapid self-disclosure hmm. of these people that I don't know. We just ended up going through like these pledge activities together. 
I'm thinking about the question here, but it's just really intriguing to me how whenever you join a fraternity, like you're someone's brother, they're your family. I, I think I'll take the question in a, a little bit different way yeah. to help perhaps contextualize it and where my, my, my thinking is about this. Humans have an intense desire to affiliate themselves with groups of people. Um, those groups of people can be as small as, you know, me and my partner, romantic partner, me and my kids, my, my partner, my home, my family, my, you know, and that can be defined in a lot of in, in ways and in, in variable ways, but oftentimes some combination of marriage and legal <laughs> arrangements. But the thing is, is people always want to feel like they're part of something, something that actually has some sort of sense of so, social meaning, group meaning. And what I say to people, for example, People in Lawrence have a great amount of pride for Lawrence. They love Lawrence. Well, who are these people? Have I pulled them? Have I asked them? Not really, but I'm sussing out a sense of community identity from what I observe about the way that people talk about Lawrence in my place that I live. So I infer that the community has an identity that has some sort of value to me as a member of Lawrence community, but also that it actually includes me in a way that I'm getting something good out of that. I feel good about the fact that I live in a place that seems to care about the city that we live in. And I, and I do. I, I, I'm not saying those things as a hypothetical. I mean those things sincerely. I don't think fraternities or sororities or fire departments or Kiwanis clubs or VA groups or even a, a kickball league or a softball league or a church or a synagogue or a mosque are all that different. They all function by a similar sense of it's a, a segue into finding a sense of group identity that's sustainable. And that when it's in an ideal form, that ideal form allows you to derive a sense of value and purpose from that, that you may not be able to get in through your own life. Um, and it's in its best form, religion, religions, plural, help us to look outside of ourselves to sacrifice for a greater good of one another towards the goal of forgiveness, towards the goal of beneficence, towards the goal of eliminating a sense of loneliness or isolation with always an understanding that life is impermanent and it will end. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful set of tools that it offers people. And then it also adds an identity. I am Catholic. I am, you know, Presbyterian. I am whatever. So the point is, is that group related social processes have an intense power and they have in the way that we're built, but they're able to be really loosely applied to all manner of things from a team at work to a kickball team to you know, as you mentioned, a fraternity. But I think that broadly speaking, the language of you're my brother or you're my family or we're pledges or we have, we are all members of this organization. You know, social psychology research has long demonstrated that those simple tools of saying we, not I, and you and I, which creates a we, then also tends to bind us in favor of those people over other people. I favor you because we are a we. I prefer you. I would prefer to hang out with you. I prefer to spend time with you. So there's all that. I find that interesting, but I'm also not, I don't study that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I do think is interesting about those organizations, and this is true for college students, for adults, for older adults, you know, people at different parts of their lives, is more about the way that they situate your time and your access to people. Mm. I, I feel strongly that one of the saddest things about growing up and I'm, you know, I'm 46 now, but one of the saddest things about growing up and all of the things that you lose as you grow up, one of the things that I'm, you know, I feel really 
um, intensely about is that you don't have at regular access to the people that you love for your whole life. Yeah. I went back to Los Angeles um, and saw three, I saw, excuse me, four very, very close friends and then worked with a work colleague who I'm very close to. And he and I worked together for four days on the book that we're writing. But in between, I went to Los Angeles and saw four friends, almost each of them for a day or a day and a half. And the process of renewing my sense of friendship with these people was profound, but I only see them every third year now because of the pandemic, you know, because of kids, because of their own life, but they are so special to me, but they're gone. Like in my day-to-day life, a fraternity, a religious organization, what it does is it gives you access to people weekly, daily, even over and over and over again, sharing the things that matter in your life and also the things that are mundane and don't seem to matter until they're gone. Like having someone to eat, eat with, having someone to watch a game with. What's weird about these mundane actions of sociality is that they actually build our sense of community and identity in a way that's very securing. It makes us feel connected to the world. But it also gives us a sense of we are in- interdependent. What I do matters to somebody else. Who, who People around me matter. You know, pe- and I matter to them, which is pretty, pretty significant. What I'm sad about as I grow up, and I also watch it in society, is a lot of people who are middle-aged, but also a lot of Americans, have no places to go for community. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, what? You can go places to shop, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of places to buy stuff. But think about it. How many, time, how many places exist merely for the sake of seeing the same people week after week and expect nothing from you financially from that? Like, there it doesn't exist. And I think that what's profound about when people study sociality or the decline of American institutions around social behavior or the increasing rates of loneliness in the country, which are all issues that I'm familiar with and, and conversant is, as I often trace it back to the reality that there just aren't a whole lot of places where people are that you can go to repeatedly without a cost or expense that make you into a group member and make you into a place that you can feel connected that are not religious right now. There's, there's a couple. I mentioned some of them, but there are not many. And religious, religious attendance is declining. It's the lowest it's ever been in recorded history in the United States. People who identify with religion or go weekly is now down to its lowest rate. Wow. And the pandemic kicked it down. Like it was already on its way down because we're moving a more secular society, but it kicked it down farther because people are now afraid of COVID, which makes sense, especially for um, older adult populations. But what that means is another place of which that we don't have a sense of social connection lost. So I know in a, bit, in a very different direction than you asked about the process of calling someone your brother, but I think there's actually something bigger there, which is the way that we organize our time and the spaces that we share with one another. Yeah. And that family structure, I know that like historically I see myself being a part of maybe involved in a church and it's the same verbiage there as you were discussing. It's like, oh, you're my brother and sister in Christ, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like after the week after you go through the whole process, it's like, oh yeah, now you're my brother, you know, now you're my sister and we need to take care of that. And yeah, that's, you're baptized into a church, right? Right. If you go through processes that have to do with like a bat mitzvah, a bar mitzvah, you become an adult member of the synagogue. You know, there, there are lots of, What's wonderful about those rituals is that it says it's a ritual of acceptance, but also a ritual of becoming one with the institution. And again, there are many good good things about religious practices and being, and there are things that are not wonderful about those things. Yeah. 
That said, the process is actually incredibly profound if you think about the value of ritual, of oneness, of identity, of time and space organization, of memory, of you know what it's orienting you towards in terms of our obligation to one another. And I think we are going through a time as our rise of secularism goes up that um, there aren't a whole lot of things to replace it. And I think that that's probably why it's also really hard for people to feel connected these days. Yeah. I've had a hard time feeling connected. Whenever Annie and I, we moved from North Carolina, yeah. it was in the middle of COVID, right? And I had never been to Lawrence, Kansas before. And then we got involved in the church and I met some people there. But beyond that, it's like, where do I go to find these friendships? And even if I met some people who I thought were cool, right? It'd be like, oh, they're already doing this, you know, or they're already doing that on different pages. But I find myself playing sports. Like that seems to be the only way that I can find like groups of people. I was looking up the chess club the other day, even though I'm going to get waxed at the chess, chess club. But at least there are people there um, who, who are looking for community. And it's hard to make friends. For, for some reason, it's really hard for me to ask people to hang out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a really vulnerable thing to do. Uh, and I know I'm not alone in that. From your research, have you seen that a lot of people, like in my instance, where after grad school, I moved to a new city, have a hard time making friends? So... My friends and I are working on a project academically called American Friendship Project. And one of the things that we have in our long study of this is the idea of a set of friendship killers. And you named a couple. Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. And we got married. There's, there's actually four that you mentioned. <laughs> you moved, you finished school, right? Right. And you got married. So what's interesting is of those, none of those are inherently bad. And two of them are arguably really, really important. Marriage and or finding someone that you love and, and, and being with someone that you love, um, whether marriage is involved or not. And also degree, getting a degree is a good thing. Yeah. But the bottom line is all of those things require losing time, access to the same people year after year in a predictable manner. And so, yeah, do does my research suggest or do other people's research suggest that it's hard to make friends? Definitely. Does it get harder as you get older? Yes, and is it an issue of access to people? Yes. Is it an issue of time? Yes. Is it an issue of priority? Yes. Is it an issue of work? Definitely. The bottom line is, is that it is excruciatingly difficult because unlike that moment in, gra- in undergraduate particularly, and I know I keep coming back to this because I think it's a, a kind of an environment par excellence for explaining why it is that people develop so many friends in that period of their lives. People open to making friends there year after year. I right. Mean, there you go. With time. And that's the other part that I keep coming back to. So it's ext- it's very hard. And I am deeply sympathetic to the realities that I, I read an article recently. And what it suggested was something that I thought was very important for us to think about is when institutions and rituals that are social in nature are in decline, that puts more and more focus on the individual to rebuild them. And so there's not some sort of nefarious mastermind who's preventing people from joining a Kiwanis club. Like that's not happening. And there are obviously still sporting events and there are still chess clubs and there are still churches, obviously. So it's not as if those things are being like taken from us. But it is true that as the centrality of things like that decline, 
we now become responsible for making our friends. We yeah. now become responsible for making those appointments and saying, hey, do you want to hang out? And what are we going to do? <laughs> and that's a ton of work. Mm -hmm. And I think that you add, if you think of it as work that's embedded in systems which are already making it hard to have time, it becomes even worse. So, you know, I know, Chris, that you joined, you started this podcast in part because of all the hours you were working. In my research, the number one predictor of people spending less social time is time at work. Wow. Number one, more so than social media by a long margin, but more so than anything else. And the reason is that work does a couple of things. It takes away from your energy to give to other people. It makes your your schedules for a lot of Americans makes your schedule erratic. So you can't make plans because you don't know when you're going to get a shift or if you're going to pick up another gig job here or there. And it expects like total sacrifice to the institution, the higher you have education or professionalism, which is insane. You know, leisure used to be defined by making enough money not to work. Now it's the inverse where the more education you have, the less leisure you have because you're <laughs> supposed to be working. Right. I mean, that is insane to me. Yeah. But I can't deny it's true. I, I saw that in my cohort of people who graduated. I'm a firm Gen Xer, you know, and I think for millennials, it's also true. And they went through a period of maturation during the, um, you know, the Great Recession, which made jobs even more dire and difficult to get and keep. But the bottom line is, is we live in a world in which that it does not prioritize our time with one another. And we are made responsible for it. So even I always feel this kind of weird sense of confusion because people often ask me because I did this paper on the number of hours it takes to make a friend and I'm an ostensible expert in friendship. What should I do? What should I do? And I have honest answers and I'm happy to share them here too. Please do. I will. <laughs> but I would also say that I also give them with a sense of modesty and humility to say that I offer those answers, but also go, this is... This is just reinforcing a, a problem, which is making other people responsible for problems which are bigger than them. Yeah. Right? It's like the, the equivalent of this is a, one I like to use because my wife has studied uh, sedentary behavior. We live in a world that makes us move a lot less. So it's your job to be exercising or right. your job to get a standing deck or, or a desk. Or it's your job to add some 15 minutes of stretching and Pilates in the middle of a day of work. I mean – that it's your job to do all those things is not untrue, but it's also kind of insane in a culture in which they were already having to integrate so many other things into our life. So I worry at some level that when I say, here are the things you can do to make friends, what I'm also doing is just saying, yeah, we're part of a system that's putting this on you and I'm just going to keep contributing to putting this all on you because I kind of feel it's not going to make it, no one's going to make it better. Yeah. No one's going to come in and make the situation better for all of us. We all have to come to terms with ourselves and say, I want to prioritize relationships and, and I'll do that. And you mentioned it's the system. Yeah. Do you think in the past, maybe 50 years ago, it was easier for people to make friends? No, I don't think people, it was easier to make friends. I think the process of friendship is always hard. And I still think friendship is hard. I think being a good friend is hard. I think caring for people is hard. I think taking on their burdens is hard. I think loving people is hard. And I think that work is the most important work we'll do in our lives. Yeah. It's all hard. It's yeah. always been hard. And in some ways, there's an argument to be made it was harder in the past because your lives were so much more enmeshed in other people's lives because you're going to be geographically less mobile. Meaning, if you never move away, you have to keep a good relationship with more people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if your work life and your home life are totally intertwined, like on a farm, right? 
you got to keep good relationships because, damn it, you're not going to succeed if you don't keep both the relationship and the work in good shape. And professional relationships these days are more disposable. And it's although it's good to make friends at work, they're not treated with the same level of integration that I think in the past. So I don't. I think that it wasn't easier because it's never been easy. It was more convenient in the past to have access to people that you met because people didn't move as much. So geographic mobility was lower. People were not able to be reachable at home after they worked. <laughs> so there was less of the working off hours through your phone or through your, you know, your laptop or whatever. But there's a third piece to this too, which is that the number of hours Americans are working has increased since roughly 1972, and it doesn't have show any signs of stopping. People are working and working, working, and part of that is women entering to the workforce, which is a good thing, and it gives women a choice to work in a way that they didn't have a choice prior to certain moments in history. But that means on average, everyone's working more, and it just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So add the gig economy workers, the people mm -hmm. doing Grubhub or the people doing Uber just to make ends meet. The reality of it is that the systems of work, to me, are a better explanation of time and friendship than most anything else. Wow. I think about all of the hard times I have whenever I'm wanting to make friends. And within that industry I was a part of, this healthcare IT, I would see people, they would have a job for two years at one company. And then they'd get the certain title. like, And then they'd switch to this other company and they'd take a 40 grand pay bump. And it'll be like, dang, you're making more money. And then you see on LinkedIn three years later, oh, hey, I'm transitioning to this one space. And it's this upward mobility, like you're making more money, but they're physically moving themselves over and over and over again. And I just think how hard it must be to be a part of community, right? To like have those friends. Yep. And I, I know that that's like a glorified thing in some sense of like, oh, I went to like on LinkedIn. If you go, it'll be like, I work at Netflix, but in parentheses, it'll say formerly Snapchat. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like this is my pedigree type deal, like moving around. And you mentioned it's like the system of work and increasing hours of work. Do you think that the future of this system looks like less friendships? <laughs> The trends aren't looking good. Yeah. The trends are not looking good. I can answer that. Um, you know, you could have just described academia right there, right? You go to this graduate school, then you go to that graduate school, then you move to the first job, you move to the second job, and you move to this job. And you can only, in academia, one of the, the maybe not so public secrets of academia is you really only get meaningful pay raises if you either move to administration or you, get a, you move up to another university. You okay. don't really have an opportunity to get paid more as a salary. You can get paid more in other ways. Um, but I digress. Yeah, the the trends are bad, man. Like bad. Like so, I published an article in the Wall Street Journal this summer, and it was called "The Age of Interiority." And one of the things I argued in that is that there is trends from Australia, UK, United States. The number of minutes that people are spending on an average week and social time with one another has been in decline since the '90s, wow. and it keeps going down. And it's now down to the point where you know we have lost something to the effect of. I think the estimate is somewhere around an hour and a half to two hours of time a week with people just socializing for the sake of socializing. And most of that time is lost for people who are working, particularly lost for people who work gig jobs or two jobs. And it's lost in the sense in which that people are trading out time that they spend alone watching TV for those things. Mm -hmm. So is TV or streaming or social media taking away from our social time? No, 
people are not having access to social opportunities and they turn to entertain themselves in the time that they have left because they're freaking tired. Right. They're just tired. And I mean, Netflix is, or whatever your favorite streaming is there for you in a way that bothering a friend can't be, right? Yeah. They can't, they can't be. Are, you also describe this idea that your pedigree of your job placement becomes, you know, your your reason for being absolutely the truth in the sense that there is a class of as people who are trying to either stay in middle class or to be upwardly mobile and in, in, in middle class, um, built on a sense of economic anxiety and an expectation from their childhood and otherwise of constant success that says that sacrificing for the sake of work is a noble sacrifice. Mm. And one of the points that I make in the book that I'm writing is I write a part that says, if we took a young person who was intelligent and capable of going to college and they said, I'm not going to go to just going to go to the one in town because I'm going to spend more time with my friends. We'd be like, what? Yeah. Go to Harvard. Yeah. Go to the better school. It doesn't even have to be Harvard, man. And it could be like the school in the other state. Yeah. You know, if a person said, oh, I just graduated from undergrad, but rather than leaving town to go to graduate school, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to spend more time with my friends because these people are awesome. We'd be like, you're foolish. Right. You know, go get that better job. This is your chance to really make that pay increase happen because right out of college is your time to shine. It's all seen in the lens of sacrifice towards a, uh, towards a calling of work and success. And I know I'm kind of being bagging on it, but I did the same damn thing, man. My, my wife and I moved at once every 18 months for eight years. Wow. Yeah. And did it together seven of those times, you know? So I think the thing is, is that I'm not pissing on this or <laughs> looking down on it because it's something I didn't do. It was, I was cognizant at the time that I was feeding a sense of my own wanting to accomplish and expand my horizons. And through a set of very fortunate circumstances, for most of that time, I was able to move with my wife now, but at then my girlfriend or my fiance, and then move back to Los Angeles where I had a really good network of people after I had left roughly four years after I left. Yeah. And then moved back to Kansas after having left Kansas for almost 10 years. So there were people here to see. I got, I was not doing those things strategically. Those things happened by a combination of choice and luck. But I am deeply thankful for the fact that for some reason, you know, 20 something year old Jeff made decisions that kept me close to the people who I loved and within my, within geographic access to people that were friends of mine um, because I had the wherewithal to know that that was going to be important in the long run, because it has been. Yeah. And with less social time spent with others, does that coincide with an increasing rate of loneliness? Definitely. What's, yeah. What's the loneliness research look like? How do they do that? Is that self-reported? It's all self-reported, but the research on self-reported loneliness is that it's a very good indication of things such as they've done studies on people's brain scans. They've done, you know different indicators that are more biological in origin to say how much is self-reported loneliness really indicative of a greater loneliness problem and it's related but as it stands self-reported loneliness is the most important thing because it's a subjective experience so you may be a more introverted person and you may like to only have a couple times meet up with friends and hang out with annie and you're good to go yeah another person might be really much more happy if they had five or six of those things right, right rather than two and so loneliness is subjective in the sense that it's not meeting where you want to be. It's not meeting your needs. 
So it has to be subjective because That's there's true. no such thing as saying, well, did you go out twice this week? You right. are not lonely. It doesn't yeah. work that way. It, it may not be enough. That's a really good point. What's the harm of loneliness? It's worse than smoking cigarettes. It's worse than not eating well. It's worse than um, high BMI. Uh, you live you live fewer years. You are lonelier while you're alive. You have less meaning in your life. Your life is less satisfying. It's bad. Loneliness is very bad. And what's hard about it is that it's very, very pernicious. It's hard to, to stabilize once people are become lonely. Um, lonely people engage in a lot of behaviors that show other people that they don't want to talk. They don't want to hang out. Mm. They want to be alone. And people, a lot of times, choose to let lonely people alone because it seems like the right thing to do. You know, I don't want to interfere with you. It's not my role to, to mess with you. It just makes sense, right? At a certain point, if someone is signaling me they don't want to be talked to, they don't want to receive my phone call, they don't respond to my text, they don't, you know, back in the old days, open their door. <laughs> right. <laughs> and at some point, you just go, well, okay, that's fine. It's them. It's their call. It's not my business. It's not, I mean, especially friends. Friends don't see their responsibility as telling another friend to stop, knock it off, and quit being lonely. They go, well, I guess that's just where they're at, and that's, that's okay. We have very accepting attitudes about the idea that someone may want to be alone. The hard thing is figuring out the difference between someone who's alone in a good way, solitude, and, lo and alone in a bad way, which is being lonely. And that's a hard thing to, to read from the outside. Is the research on loneliness and social time spent together, does it look different with more collectivist cultures? Some, but generally speaking, there isn't good evidence anywhere that people are thrive by being lonely more. There just isn't good evidence. There's a, there's a study I read just last week in relation to the book that said that people, even with people who were with high social anxiety, like di diagnosably treatable high social anxiety, are still happier with people than being alone. Because you'd go, well, isn't a person's subjective discomfort with people indicative of their need to be alone? Weirdly not. It's actually indicative of an arousal system that's gone awry that makes people uncomfortable being with others. Yeah. doesn't mean they don't want to. Right. So what's strange is, is that introverts benefit just as much as extroverts being social. High people with high social anxiety still benefit from being social versus being alone. Um, there's even some research that suggests that introverts benefit more than extroverts in being social because they started at such a low social state to begin with. And whenever you are in a friendship or a relationship and it doesn't go well, it's a bit depressing and mm. you end up being lonely more because you have, there's like this positive reinforcement of like something goes bad, you're lonely, you get depressed, then you're more depressed because you're lonely, mm. like, which can be, like you said, this really destructive, pernicious cycle. I like that word pernicious. How do we become a good friend? <laughs> In which way? There are so many great ways to be a good friend. What way would you like to know? The best way. The best way. <laughs> like you, you know better than I'm going to answer that question with one answer. There's lots of ways to be a good friend. Depends on the kind of friendship you want to have with somebody. Yeah. So we'll use me as a case study. Okay. Okay. Now I've joined this basketball group. Yeah. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6 a.m. Yeah. 45 a.m. Good for so, you. Yeah. Even though I can't really hoop, I can't really play basketball that well, I can make them laugh and I'm getting better. But, and you show up. And I show up. Exactly. And that was honestly, there's a group me for it. And they've been struggling to get numbers. 
So I had to essentially say, hey, I know I'm not the best, but at least I show up and then they can play when I'm there. Exactly. Um, so I've started to show up there and then I just joined the soccer league, right? So there's more people. I have more of a captive audience than I can expect on a um, weekly basis. So what would being a good friend look like for me showing up to this basketball group every morning? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I appreciate the specificity. Uh, I was on a softball team when I for a couple of years early on, and I was that person. I was not good. <laughs> yeah, not, not good at softball. And I had maybe one season of the, I don't know, dozen that we played that I had a good batting average, and I just could not figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I didn't play baseball growing up, so I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I showed up, man. I showed up. I showed up. I cheered people on. I said, good job. <laughs> when we were down, I said, we can do this. You know, I just was that guy. And I, you know, I didn't mean that I didn't like losing as much as we lost because we lost a lot. I didn't enjoy that, but I definitely enjoyed the process of getting to know the guys in the team, just to be part of it, having something to do, you know, being, being athletic is good for your body for a lot of different reasons. But the being a good friend in those cases means showing up, man. I mean, it means showing up. It means if there's an opportunity with you know, one or some of those people to do other fun things with them, say yes and show up again. You know, if you get together to play uh, basketball and then afterwards you go out and have breakfast, make time for that. Go hang out there, have some breakfast or get a smoothie or whatever the hell you do after basketball. If you have a chance to invite those people to go do something else fun together because you want them to know that you enjoy their company, do that. Make plans, invite people, be forgiving if they can't show up, but you show up. What's so strange is, is we live in this, there's this phrase that we use in the United States that's comical to me because it means nothing, but it implies something. And it says, we should get together sometime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Chris, we should get together sometime. Right. We, should, we should do this again sometime. And I'm like, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then what happens? And then I see you next year at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, ah, yeah, Chris. Oh, we right. should get together again sometime. And yeah. then I see you next year at the same damn thing <laughs> right. that I said that before. No follow-up. You're yeah. not alone. In fact, there was, uh, there's was there been some funny like, subreddits and other places where people are like, what the hell does this mean? Apparently, um, it's actually one of the intercultural things, too, where people from other countries hear Americans say that. And they're like, what does that mean? Are yeah. you trying to get together? Are right. we close now? Are we friends? Right. Um, so they're a little weirded out by the intimacy that it implies. But I think it's just pretty damn sad if it's true that people really want to get together sometime think freaking get together yeah like, plan it plan it execute it make it happen make plans be that person you know you and i talked before this started about the interview i did with the art of manliness which is a neat website and i didn't know about it before i got interviewed by them all and they wrote a nice article accompanying my interview and one of the things in that article is it said be okay with the idea that you may initiate and other people may flake right it's okay. Yeah. That's always has had, that's always been true in friendships, but you have to be okay with that. I think a lot of people go, well, what is it? I mean, they don't like me. They don't want to spend time with me. No, it means that A, they're busy, which is reasonable given all the things we talked about. B, they like you enough to continue to want to be there, but honestly really couldn't come that time. Or C, they're a little flaky and that's okay too, because we got to be forgiving of our friends. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it again, because if you enjoy someone's company, enjoy their company. Just do that. And I think that what's a shame is, on one hand, 
I am so sympathetic to the reality that keeping friends, making time for them with people's busy work schedules, and even more so when they have children, is very, very hard. People are tired and exhausted and burned out. On the other hand, it is such a shame that people don't recognize the opportunities for social contact, friendship, development, because they say, we should do this again sometime and never do anything about it. Yeah. I find in my life, it's like, dang, I don't really want to go to this thing. But then after it, I'm like, ooh, it recharges my batteries. <laughs> and do you think that's because I'm a self-identified or an extrovert? Or do you think that's it for everybody? No. You're, you, I got it. I have a, a short explanation and a long explanation for this one. So I'll give you the short one. You can ask yeah. the longer one if you're interested. The short explanation is, is that most things that require effort from us will avoid if given the chance. Sure. Oh, I want to go to the gym. <laughs> uh -huh. I don't, I don't want to make dinner. I could just eat some crap out of the refrigerator. I can eat some bowl of cereal. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go on a long run. I'll just put my shoes on. <laughs> Or maybe not even that. Yeah, yeah. When given an opportunity to choose a difficult or an easy or option, people will always choose the easy ones. Not going is easier than going. Yeah. And I think weirdly we imagine that the reason we don't want to go, and I've seen people do this for all kinds of reasons. Um, introverted, tired. I don't know. I don't, won't know anyone there. I won't have any fun. I think actually the impulse is I don't want to because it requires things of me. And then the people will give a bunch of reasons. And, but those reasons aren't the real reason. The real reason is, is that it takes work. And so you have to choose, you have to choose the work. Yeah. Just like you have to choose to eat well and you have to choose to exercise and you have to choose to go to bed <laughs> when you're supposed to, because it takes work. It takes discipline. It takes follow through. So the short answer is you're like everybody else in that you have a social opportunity and you're like, oh, I already had a long day at work. <laughs> right. I'll take the easier route. I'll just hang out here and I'll see what's on streaming media. I'll watch other people become friends on TV. <laughs> And we have perfect and be envious of that. Oh, I don't have any friends, but they have friends. <laughs> Do you think that the rise and the popularity of like sitcoms, there was a increase of loneliness because people saw people making friends and they're like, oh man, I want that. No, I not, not at all. I, I think that if anything, the popularity of those sitcoms spoke to, spoke to the reality that people wish for relationships they wanted to have that way. Nice. Right. And it didn't cause it. For sure, it didn't cause it. Yeah. They were popular because people wished they could have that. So I can't blame How I Met Your Mother for... No. Or Friends. Or Seinfeld. Or uh, Two Broke Girls. Or, you know, pick, pick your poison. It doesn't matter. Yeah. These are all indicative of things that we wish were true. Just in the same reason that people watched Mayberry, you know, 70 years ago, is they wished that they lived in towns like that. But that's, that's wishful thinking in the same way that we also want to see massively attractive people falling in love with each other and, and <laughs> right. Or with us. Right? We, we want that. It's yeah. not, it's not, it doesn't cause it. If that were true, then it would cause me to have, you know, friends out the wazoo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I got to change my stance that's all, all right. now. No, that's um, all right. Ask another question. Go for yeah. It. And then if I got so good at making friends, how many friends could I have at once? Depends on how you define it. Um, the best answer to this is that you can call a lot of people your friends, but you probably only have so many people you can really keep in touch with or be familiar with what's going on in their lives. Yeah. There's a difference between those things. So from all the different iterations of my life, high school, graduate school, undergraduate, working, 
professional things, living in Lawrence, friends for my kids. I have a lot of people that potentially I could have who at one time in my life were my friends, but very few people that I'm in touch with regularly enough to really call my friend now. Right. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. So is there a limit? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a limit. Where that limit lies really depends upon how you define what counts. If I only talk to someone once a year, are are we still friends or are they my old friend? Um, Is one time when – if someone's super close to me at one time in my life, are they always my friend or are they a past friend? Right. So I tend to take a pretty uh, generous attitude about this because I think there's value in keeping in touch with people who are part of your life in the past, even if you don't keep in touch with them. It's a good thing to just feel good thoughts about them and be happy for their successes because it builds an attitude of beneficence and openness to the world that I think is good. With the idea of building friends and there's different types of friends, I had heard you, you mentioned the Automaniacs podcast, you categorized best friends, friends, casual friends. Yeah. How long does it take someone to become a best friend? Over 200 hours, according to my research. <laughs> takes a long time. That's a really long time. Yep. And then if I want, so say so I meet somebody at basketball, right? I'm like, dang, he can really shoot the ball. He's funny. Ooh, I want him to become my best friend. But he is, already has best friends, right? Then that's another factor I have to consider too, huh? Yeah. In fact, uh, there's a great quote in a article by um, Beverly Fair, who's one of the experts on friendship and social psychology. And she says that people vastly overestimate their own choice making in friendship. They think mm. that they did it. They don't really understand how the other person came around to being their friend. Like you have to be open. You have to have time. It has to be convenient. And critically, you have to actually both like each other enough to want to become that level of intimacy. But we can't really know really fully what another person thinks about us. And even after they become our best friend, we still may not know 100% what they think about us. Um, Because in some ways, unconditional positive regard is a condition of best friendship, not total 100% truth. Right. (laughs) Yeah. How, you know, whenever we're talking about certain skills or woodworking, for instance, a way to get better at woodworking is to get to know different cuts of wood and different tools. How does, what's something people could work on to get better at making friends? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, There's three things. Taking rejection, meaning if a person says no, keep going at it, even if they say no, or not now, or I'm too busy, or I'd love to, but not this week, or if they don't return your phone call or your text, keep keep at it. So number one skill is accepting that it's not going to work out every single time you ask somebody to do something with you resilience in that way. Second is if you get somebody in conversation, get better at asking questions, get better at being able to wait for them to continue to talk rather than to use it as a platform for you to say the next thing. I'm guilty as this is the next person. But if you really take time to ask people questions and wait for them to answer, they'll often tell you all kinds of interesting things, but you have to be patient for that. And I think the third is, is that, you know, recognize that there is a dynamic process that doesn't just involve you. Get better at the idea that people are going to suck. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be disappointing. They're going to say things you don't agree with. They're going to have different attitudes. They may be off-putting or say something mean sometimes. But if every little incident send us to the toilet of friendship, we wouldn't have any friends. And frankly, if people treated us that way, we would have anybody at all because we're all imperfect and we all make mistakes. So we have to hope that other people will see us as valuable people, despite the fact that 
we make mistakes. So see your friends as being complex people who have mistakes inherent to them and care for them anyway. You said questions, ask questions. What's your favorite question to ask people? What are some of your favorite questions (laughs) and asking whenever you're building that friendship? I think, well, I mean, that's a very, that's a very specific question. I hadn't thought of that. Um, for some reason, I'm really intrigued by questions. Yeah. The, well, if you're going to do podcasts, you got to get better at them, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the best question that you can ask people, no matter what stage of friendship you're at, you just met somebody to someone who's really close to you. The best question is, what do you think about? Mm. It, and it, it adopts an attitude of openness. It makes you the person who's interested in knowing them. It doesn't put them on the defensive. Right. But the about part needs to be filled in with something that is relevant to them or they have expertise about or they know something about. Yeah. And so one of my go-to tactics when I'm getting to know people is once I learn about their career or their profession, once I know about their place in life or where they've gone through, I'll say, ask a question like, what do you think about this thing pertaining to your career, your profession? What do you think about if you're a teacher in middle school? What do you think about this whole teacher, you know, crisis thing? Or is it true? You know, do you see that around you? What do you think about the idea that, you know, girls are maturing uh, earlier in pu- you know, puberty? Do you see that? Is that true? Is that something you observe? Mm-hmm. What do you think about, you know, whether or not, and I never try to ask them questions that are obviously like I have an answer to. I ask them questions that I really don't know. Mm-hmm. I've heard some stuff about and I don't know what the answer is to that. Because I treat, by treating other people as an expert on their own life, they will talk to you a lot. <laughs> but if you treat them as an audience to your expertise, they tend to be kind of off put by that. Right. Yeah. I've always thought something similar, like get people talking about what they're passionate about. Well, passion is tricky because a lot of people don't even know what they're passionate about. Mm. And some people, if you ask them about work or whatever, they do not want to talk about it. That's true. You know, if you ask people what they're passionate about, it might be something that is quite personal to them. And it's a pretty heavy question. But you're right that if you can get to a place where you know what someone is passionate about, then you can say, well, what do you think about da-da-da-da? Right. Yeah. What do you think about da-da-da-da? That is the question. And you ended this Art of the Manliness podcast in a really cool way because he was asking along the lines of like, what's the one takeaway? And you said, don't be a flake. Don't be a flake. <laughs> and I think that's really important. Yeah. yeah. Don't be a flake. Show up. Keep showing up. Keep inviting people. Keep trying. Period. Yeah. It's just, that's it, man. I tell people this all the time. I have lists of things to do where I put things like, you know, write email to my friends who I write emails to, make phone call appointment with people who I talk on the phone to, make a time to have lunch with so-and-so. I put them on my list of things to do. I'm an expert on friendship, again, ostensibly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I got to remind myself to do this stuff. It doesn't come naturally. And it doesn't come naturally because I don't think about these people. It's because there's too damn many things to do. But if I make it a priority, it also means I got to put it on my list. And that's for me. Other people have other ways of getting things done. And list is mine, but whatever works for you. Yeah, it's so important. And people who have gotten to know me, like talking to people, showing up whenever, the only way you can ever be a good friend is if you show up. People talk about leadership. The only way you can be a good leader is if you show up. All of these qualities, if you're not existing in that current space or wherever it's at, you won't be able to showcase anything if you never show up, if you're never there. And uh, we don't show up in the United States culture because we're working, because we're watching TV, 
because the commute is too long, because parking is a pain in the butt, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because we have children. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of obligations, so we can't even show up. But you're right. Step one is showing up. And yeah. in the age of the you know online media, mobile media, showing up can also mean making time to talk to somebody on the phone, you know, taking time to actually have a, a good text exchange. So showing up can take different forms. It doesn't require face-to-face communication, although that my own research would suggest it's, that's by far the best for developing relationships and feeling connected. Other things matter too. Yeah, they do. And the cool thing about having you here is you have so much to talk about from digital stress. I'm really interested in that to communicate bond belong theory, like all of this. It's so important. So where can people find your research? Where can people learn more about what you are meddling in every day? Yeah. So the relationships and technology lab at KU, it's, it's easily searched. You can find it. I try to keep it updated with the, the newspaper articles that quote me or that I'm, that I write or ones that are pertinent to my research. Um, there's a couple of videos up there, you know, when I'm have been on TV talking about friendship or videos that we've created in my own lab about the research we've done. So you can see all the kind of stuff that's going on if you're interested in knowing more about that. Uh, and over time, we're going to develop a, an online presence for the American Friendship Project. Um, that's in the works. It's happening slowly, but eventually that too. Cool. Yep. Well, thank you for being here. You're a rock star. Uh, <laughs> Not about that. Like I said, I love talking to people. And whenever I'm looking for a good goal to obtain, yeah. I look at your research. Oh, thank you. You know what I mean? Because you've actually done it and you've researched it, but you're practicing as well. So uh, thanks again. And we will see you next time, folks. You know it. Be well. 